0: There's got to be an analogy here. That life without hope is like a preacher without a sound system. And my man, Dale, just brought hope. Unless you really don't want to hear what I had to say, and you have no hope, because this is loud. What a difference hope makes in one's life. Without it, one feels lost. With it, one feels like they've been given a new break, a new chance, a new voice, if you will. People who regularly visit patients in the hospital can often tell which patients are going to survive, which patients are going to heal more quickly. You can visit a patient, you can see someone who is beaten down, who is overcome by pain, and who just doesn't seem to have any hope. That person heals more slowly. That person takes more time to to get better. And sometimes they simply never get better. There's even a, a medical term called failure to thrive. That's what happens without hope. The observation made in the book of Proverbs is that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Indeed, if it were not for hope, our hearts would break. We would not survive. We would be hopeless and despairing. We simply would not enjoy life. So I think it's quite simple to say that people of all ages need hope. Young people need hope. Today we find that many young people in our lives and our society uh, are hopeless, or they live as if they're hopeless. They feel trapped and out of control of their own destinies. Suicide among teenagers is the third leading cause of death, only behind traffic accidents and homicides. Without hope, life seems not worth living. You get older and middle-aged people need hope. The realities and responsibilities we have uh, have have left many with unfulfilled dreams have, have left them feeling like they have no hope. Either they've reached middle age and they haven't succeeded in their career, Their finances haven't worked out. Their families haven't worked out as they expected. And so they succumb to hopelessness. Some succeed, and they figure, I've reached the great American dream. But it's not all it's cracked up to be. They have the cars and the toys and the money and the homes, but they're unfulfilled. They're unhappy. They are without hope. Elderly people need hope. It's the difference between living your life at whatever age as if there are still great things to happen or it's living your life in the past tense. There's nothing left for me to look forward to. The answer to the question, what's left, is a blank stare. On the other hand, hope is looking to the future Being confident that no matter what age you are, God has great things in store for you. Even inanimate objects, even even, uh, organizations or organizations like churches need hope. There was once a rundown, boarded up, overgrown, uh, weed covered chapel along the side of the road And the dilapidated sign in front of this abandoned church said, Hope Community Church. Some smart guy with a spray can had had sprayed the letters L-E-S-S in there. So it read, Hopeless Community Church. The last ministry I had before I retired was working for the Florida Georgia District of the Lutheran Church. And one of the things that we had to deal with far too frequently as the recession hit in the late 2007-2008, were the number of churches, Lutheran churches, that had to close. These were usually large structures, large buildings, in areas where there was declining population. and There weren't enough people to sustain the church anymore. And eventually the people in the church gave up hope and they called the district and said, we want to give you our building. We have no hope left. We're going to close our doors. A church without hope tries to live on the glories of the past without seeking God's will for the future. I'm talking about hope because that's really what's behind the story of the the two criminals who were on the cross with Jesus. They were really in a hopeless situation. The criminals were being executed. They were thieves being nailed to a cross. They were in the most hopeless of conditions. One of them gave up hope, but the other one found a source of hope in an unbelievable situation. And if Jesus Christ can bring hope to someone like that, imagine what he can do to us who live as his sons and daughters. See, there were two criminals crucified alongside Jesus. Luke tells us that one was on the left and one was on the right. We don't know for what they were being executed. Luke simply says that they were criminals. Some translations call them malefactors or evildoers. In Matthew's Gospel, he specifically says that they were being crucified because they were thieves. In the Roman Empire, Roman justice was very severe on thieves. Theft was a capital offense. One strike and you are out. So we look at the two thieves who were crucified with Jesus. Verse 39 tells us that one of the thieves joined the others in the crowd who were mocking Jesus. And as a much of a mocking tone as you can generate when you're hanging on the cross, we're told that one of the criminals said, are you not the Christ? If you are, save yourself. And while you're doing it, why don't you help us, too? And they probably laughed. Perhaps he was hurling insults on Jesus because of his own humiliation and home- hopelessness. Perhaps he was trying to get the sympathy of the people in the crowd who were also mocking and, and, and screaming insults at Jesus. Perhaps he felt the only way he could elevate his own situation was to degrade somebody else. We don't know, but one of the malefactors, one of the thieves was mocking Jesus. But the other thief responded by saying, this man has done nothing wrong. You notice that in this account, Jesus is not doing anything to defend himself from the verbal attacks. But the other criminal defends Jesus and says, do you, and he says to the other criminal, do you not fear God since you are under the sentence of condemnation? Indeed, you and I deserve what we're getting. We're getting the just rewards of our actions. But this man, pointing to Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. The one thief is saying to the other, in other words, who are you to criticize? Who are you to judge this innocent man? You are as condemned as he is. The difference is you deserve it and he doesn't. That's the criminal that we now refer to as the penitent thief. That's what he's doing in this situation. As we read this account, we're getting a picture, we're getting a glimpse into the life of a hopeless man who suddenly, miraculously, discovers the need to repent. He acknowledges that he has done wrong. He acknowledges that he deserves punishment. He doesn't blame other people. He doesn't blame it on society. He doesn't play the victim. No, he mans up here, and he confesses his sin and his guilt, and he says, I did it. I deserve what I'm getting. He repents. It's like the video we watched just before the sermon having the courage to acknowledge what's going on in our life. Lord, I'm falling short. Lord, I don't measure up. As we confess all the things we do and don't do in our lives, we confess, we repent. That's one of the main themes that run through the season of Lent. It's a time of repentance. And in our text tonight, that repentant thief models what we are called to do in, in Lent to repent. Now, you may have never been convicted of grand larceny. You probably have never robbed a bank. Probably no one has ever called you a thief. But on the other hand, maybe there was a time way back in your life, probably, when you may have cheated on an exam, stole somebody's answers, borrowed somebody's homework, stole their answers, it's the tax season. And I know I can't honestly confess that there are sometimes I wrote numbers with a pencil that I hoped an auditor never looked at because I kind of rounded up to the nearest hundred dollars or thousand dollars when I was counting my deductions. I robbed my fellow citizens. Or maybe it's the time you spend at work on the computer answering personal emails, stealing time from your employer. No matter how we do it, how we label it, when we look closely enough, we have to admit that like the thief, we are guilty. We have sinned. We fall short. Like the thief on the cross, we must confess, Lord, I am a poor, miserable sinner. I have to be honest and say I'm not perfect. I fall short. I sin. Not only did this repentant thief admit his guilt, but we're told that he also looked to Jesus for rescue. He turned to Jesus for mercy. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In this his most hopeless hour, this criminal sought hope. And in Jesus, his savior, he found it. It's interesting that this man dying next to Jesus looked at Jesus and saw a king. The scribes, the priests, the Roman soldiers mocked Jesus. They said, you have proclaimed yourself to be a king. Look where you are now, king. If you're king, step off the cross. They were mocking him for being a king. But the thief recognized Jesus for what he truly was. The king of kings, the Lord of lords. He recognized that the man hanging next to him, Jesus Christ, had a kingdom that was not of this world. And so he asked Jesus to remember him, to remember this thief when he came into his kingdom. Such a request was a humble petition to be included in God's kingdom. When we say something to a friend who's going off hiking, we say, Hey, remember me when you go hiking we say to someone who's going to a restaurant, hey, remember me when you go to the restaurant. What we're really saying is, hey, please invite me. I'd like to go hiking with you. I'd like to go to the restaurant with you. Remember me when you're drawing up the invitation list. And that's what the penitent thief was saying to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, when you go into your kingdom, a kingdom that I fully don't understand right now, but I believe in, will you take me with you? During Jesus' trial and crucifixion, it was very rare for him to respond. As you read the account of Jesus' passion and suffering and death, you see that he spoke very little to Pilate. He didn't say a word to King Herod. He didn't respond to those who were taunting him and mocking him. But now he speaks. He responds to this thief. And he says with a promise of hope, Truly, truly I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. It's the second thing Jesus said from the cross, his cross words. These are the words of a king who is promising a kingdom. These are words of hope for hopeless people. Listen very closely to what he says. He says, truly, this is for certain, no doubt, no question, for sure, really, really. Truly, he goes on to say, today, not sometime in the future, not in the good, good old by and by someday, he says, today, in a few hours, right now. He goes on to say, you will, not maybe, not I hope, Not it would be nice. He says, you will. He goes on to conclude that thought. Be with me in paradise. Here is the perfect kingdom. Here is the restored Eden. Jesus' words here are words of promise. He announces that in his death, he will be entering paradise. He promises the thief that he can now accompany accompany Jesus. Because in the thief's death, he will be with Jesus in paradise. In Paul's epistle to the Romans, in Romans chapter 6, he tells us, reminds us, that in your baptism, you were baptized into Jesus Christ. You were baptized into his death. And so when Jesus enters into paradise, we have the promise that we will be with him as well. you will be with me in paradise today. The repentant criminal's death would become the passageway to a glorious kingdom. It would be the passageway to paradise itself. What a dramatic transformation that is. Here's a guy hanging on a cross, dying as penalty for his sin. And because the words and promises of Jesus come to him and he believes it in faith, he's changed from one who's dying one who's being literally reborn. This man goes from utter hopelessness to perfect hope. He moves from the prospect of perishing to the prospect of paradise. And it's all because of the promise of Jesus Christ. Well, we should ask, what did the thief do to deserve this? What did he do to gain paradise? And the answer is, The thief did nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. Perhaps there's no better example in all of scripture of God's saving act by grace alone. This man deserved condemnation. Instead, he receives justification. He deserved rejection. Instead, he receives restoration. He deserves to go to hell. But in the end, he receives heaven instead. By his grace, by his love, because he loved us, because he wanted to restore the relationship, Jesus died that we might have a new life. You see, we have the same ticket, we have the same means to paradise that the thief did, only by the grace of God. We like the thief, we're evildoers. We've done evil in the sight of God. We're told in Romans that under the same sentence of condemnation, the sentence of death, because the wages of sin is death. If you've sinned, the wage is death. If you've ever sinned, the only road that you can come to is one that leads to the same kind of cross that that thief was on. But like the thief. We can't save ourselves. But Christ has come and identified himself with sinners like the thief, like you, like me. And through repentant faith, we are linked with Christ in his death and his life, which means we also inherit paradise as he did. By God's grace, my fellow sinners, by God's grace. It's our only hope. It's the only way. And the good news is he gives it to us freely. That's why we have hope. That's how we get hope for the future. Not only for the future, but also for today. As you face failure and pain and discouragement and disease, you have hope because you are in Christ. And he has given you a new life. Through adversity and disappointment, there's a promise of a new day, a new strength, a new life. In his book, Loving God, Charles Colson describes an incident that occurred in the life of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Soviet dissident who was imprisoned in a communist labor camp in Siberia for most of his adult life. Like other prisoners, Solzhenitsyn worked in the fields, his days a pattern of back-breaking labor and slow starvation. One day, he just gave up hope. He said it was too much to bear. So Solzhenitsyn said that he he gave up, he had no hope for fighting on. So he laid down his shovel and he walked slowly to the side of the road and he sat down and waited to die. He waited for the next guard to come by and beat him to death because he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. He had seen it happen many times and he was ready for it to happen to himself. But as he sat along that, alongside that road waiting for death, a fellow prisoner sat down next to him, and without saying a word, took his finger and in the dirt, traced the sign of the cross. And he looked at Solzhenitsyn, and he got up and walked away. As Solzhenitsyn stared at that rough outline, his entire perspective shifted, he knew that he was only one man against the powerful Soviet empire. But in that moment, he also was reminded of the hope that he had in Jesus Christ, the hope that the cross represented for him. So he struggled up, picked up his shovel, and went back to work. Years later, he would write some of the most powerful testimonies of human dignity in the face of of oppression, of a testimony of his Christian faith, and he became one of the voices that inflamed the forces that overthrew the Russian Empire. He was moved by the sign of the cross. When you feel like Solzhenitsyn, tired, discouraged, ready to give up on life, hopeless, look to the cross. There you find the promise of Jesus Christ, a true and lasting hope. There you will find God's promise of a better day, of a destiny not only in paradise, but a destiny of a life lived forever in relationship and fellowship with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God bless you in that, and all of God's people said, Amen.